And amen. You can have a seat in spirit of family. Tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here today. Before we jump into Mark chapter 10, you can be flipping there. I want to invite you uh, into a week of fasting, which we are starting tomorrow. And so I want to encourage you to join us um, in this spiritual discipline that, the, that God has spoken to us through the scripture. Um, we also want to fast because Jesus told the disciples that there are some spiritual breakthroughs through spiritual opposition that can only happen through prayer and through fasting. Also, Acts chapter 13 tells us that when we pray and fast as a congregation, uh, God uh, speaks with clarity. Um, The reason that we have Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians in the scripture is because back in Acts chapter 13, the church of Antioch was fasting and praying together. In the middle of that fast, God said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work that I've called them. And so that's how we got the Apostle Paul. And so we are looking forward to all of those things happening. The practice of spiritual discipline uh, for spiritual breakthrough and answered prayer. And also God's voice to speak clearly uh, to us as a church. And so we want to invite you into it. Uh, you can go online, bayoucityfellowship.com. Put in your email address under the fasting uh, section and you will get a devotional guide uh, emailed to you starting tonight, each night for the next day that will have uh, some scripture for you to read and we'll have some thoughts uh, for you to uh, rally your thoughts behind and then a prayer guide as well. So you can be praying for uh, yourself personally, so you can be praying for our city and the world and so you can be praying for our church. If you have never fasted before, there are lots of on-ramps, and we make some recommendations for you. You may try a Daniel fast. That's just fruits and vegetables uh, all week long. If you've done that before, I want to encourage you, whatever you've done before, do a little bit more this time. So if you've done the fruits and vegetables before, then skip breakfast or skip lunch. Uh, If you've done uh, a fast for lunch, then add breakfast or add dinner. If you've done those before, then maybe I'd encourage you to fast all week long without food, only water. Of course, uh, under doctor's supervision and and being wise, of course, some of you ladies are pregnant and you need to eat. All right. So uh, there may be some different options of of what you could give up. Uh, The point of fasting is not the giving up. That is half. Um, the other half is prayer. So if you just skip lunch, but you don't pray instead, uh, then you've just gone on a diet that probably won't be that effective. Um, so it's the prayer. So whatever you do, add the prayer in. And uh, I'm looking forward to God doing more work this week uh, than maybe he has done in a long time because we are praying more this week. Uh, than we have prayed in a long time. So please join us. Go online, bayoucityfellowship.com, and uh, find out the details and about how you might participate. So Mark chapter 10, we're answering a simple question today. What is my relationship with Jesus' healing power? My son Jackson was born about 11 years ago a little over 11 years ago, and Amanda and I were just young, and we didn't know anything about having a baby. So when we went to the hospital, we we were excited to be able to watch television. 
because that's how we thought it was going to go. It was just going to be a nice, relaxing time, and we would leave home with a baby. And, uh, you know, that's probably true for me, uh, not as true for her. So we checked in the night before they were going to start the process with medicine and induce. And, you know, as soon as you get into the hospital, they just start hooking you up with all kinds of things. And they put a belt around her to monitor the baby's heart rate. And, you know, you didn't even know to be worried about something like that for this entire nine months until you can see the heart rate on a monitor. And it's there, his heart rate in the womb, beep, 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 beep. And, you know, and um, about halfway through the night, it dropped you know, the nurses have all of that stuff out in their station and they start coming into the room and, you know, you don't think much about Jesus healing power until you need it. But when that moment comes and you're never prepared for that moment, it, it never emails you ahead of time. You know, cancer never sends an RSVP notice. Before that moment happens to us, we need to know what is mine? What is our relationship with Jesus' healing power? And this story in Mark chapter 10 about a blind man will help us answer that question today. So here's what we know when you're listening, guide. The verifiable truth about a man named Bartimaeus. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So here's what we know. This is the verifiable truth about our new friend, Bartimaeus. First, Bartimaeus was blind. Second, Bartimaeus was a beggar. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, verse 46 says. Now what that means is it means he has no one that he is related to either in a family way or in a friend way who can take care of him. Now imagine what it would have been like for him to set off on his own. Imagine what circumstances that would have to be for a blind man to say, essentially, based on the facts that we have here, I'm going to be a homeless beggar as a blind person. Being a homeless beggar would be difficult enough, but add on top of that, the blindness. This kind of circumstance is stressful. Not knowing where food is going to come from, probably living in a constant state of hunger. In fact, I read a study this week, I read about a study that some doctors are doing where they're studying the relationship between mothers who are pregnant, who are living in extreme poverty with extreme hunger and the effects that it has on the baby in her womb. And these scientists have hypothesized with good reason, a worldwide study right now, because they believe that if a mother living under extreme duress, when she is pregnant, it actually can rewrite the DNA code of the child. That something physical and chemical is happening in the DNA coding of the infant because the mother is living in a constant state of hunger. Bartimaeus' situation is serious. We read it with a lack of seriousness because we are assuming if God has put it in the scripture with the hands of Mark, that there is a happy ending. We assume we're not meeting him in the beginning of verse 46, only to find out that things are worse for him at the end of verse 52. So we read it with a lack of empathy. 
But Bartimaeus' life is very stressful. It's hard. It's constant hunger. It's isolation. A couple of weeks ago, I was pulling into the parking lot of a Target near me, and it was a warm late afternoon. And there was a man there in a wheelchair with a sign, as you often see here in Houston. But he was asleep, and it was not a peaceful sleep. You could see on his face, it was, in my opinion, a sleep of hopelessness. And that's Bartimaeus, hopeless without a future on the side of the road. We also know verifiable truth that Bartimaeus was the son of Timaeus. That's what it says. A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. Bar in Aramaic means son of. So his name, as we are reading it, Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. So uh, Jesus would be Jesus bar Joseph, the son of Joseph. I would be Curtis bar Steve. Doesn't have quite the ring to it that Bartimaeus has. If you are a a man in here today, you would be your name, bar your dad's name. Bartimaeus probably had another name and a a few options. Either his family just adopted Bartimaeus as his primary name, or he adopted it when he might have had made his own choice, or his original name has been lost through history. And Mark only recorded the fact that he was the son of Timaeus. But it brings us to an interesting question. Where is Timaeus? If his son is blind, begging on the side of the road, where is he? Most likely he's already passed away. Most likely Bartimaeus' mom has already passed away. Most likely Bartimaeus either did not have a brother or a sister or they've passed away too. He is all alone, isolated. And number four, verifiable truth, Bartimaeus was a blind beggar by the roadside. And it says, and he was sitting by the roadside. This represents his place in the culture. He is literally a spectator of society. He is sitting on the side of the road, watching everyone else's life go by, hoping for just a few scraps to come his way. But look how the story ends in verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So he gained his sight. And why? Jesus said, because your faith has made you well. So let's talk about Bartimaeus' faith. In your listening guide, five things I'd love for you to write down on your way out today. First, Bartimaeus believed, number one, that Jesus was the Messiah. This is his faith. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. It says in verse 47, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. Now, when Bartimaeus used the phrase son of David, it was intentional and it was specific. It was a reference back to a promise that God had made to David, one of their ancestors in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was king and God had said to David, David, if you'll keep your end of the covenant that I'm making with you today, then one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. David held up his end of the covenant. Solomon, his son, though, did not. And the kingdom of Israel was split in two. Southern kingdom was known as Judah. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. And by the time Bartimaeus is in first century Israel, at the time of Jesus, it had been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since a descendant of David had sit on a throne in Israel. 
So the people of God began to look forward to the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior that God was going to send, a descendant of David who would sit on a throne. So when Bartimaeus says, son of David, he's saying, Jesus, I believe you are from Nazareth. That's where you were born, but you are the promised one of God. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah. That's what Bartimaeus believed. Number two, Bartimaeus believed that Jesus might have mercy to heal. Son of David, have mercy on me. We're talking about our relationship with Jesus healing power today, but we need to ask the question that hangs in the air when we talk about healing. It's the elephant that's always in the room. Why doesn't Jesus heal everyone? If Jesus has healing power, why does he not empower us as his followers, his servants to go down to MD Anderson and walk the halls and pray with people? Why do we ever have to go to the doctor at all? Well, we see some scriptural reasons why God may not immediately heal us through Jesus' power. First, from John chapter 9, he doesn't heal us immediately sometimes so that God might get the glory in the timing. John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples meet a blind man, another blind man. He was born blind. So the disciples take up a philosophical and religious question, who sinned? Did he sin somehow in the womb or did his parents sin and this is their punishment? And Jesus says to them in John chapter nine, it is not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him and immediately Jesus heals him. He had been born blind, but there was a moment for Jesus' glory, his revelation to the people there in Jerusalem, where the timing of the healing mattered. So it may be that you're praying for healing today and God is saying no now for a future time later so that Jesus might get the glory in timing. Another reason God might not heal immediately is because of a lack of faith. Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. Mark chapter six, it says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them And he marveled because of their unbelief. So Mark is writing with the understanding that lots of people in and around Nazareth needed lots of miracles, but Jesus was only able to do a few because of the lack of faith. Jesus also doesn't heal everyone because sometimes he chooses to use current medicine. First Timothy chapter five, the apostle Paul writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, a pastor. And if you read first Timothy, it's, it's very pastoral. It's very instructional. And right in the middle, there's a little modern medicine that pops up because Timothy is sick. And Paul writes to him and says, uh, you need to, instead of drinking water, you need to have a little wine for your stomach. Now it's hard for us to understand, but that was modern medicine of the first century. Your stomach is upset. Don't drink water, drink wine. Paul doesn't say, Stop and pray for healing. He says, use this commonly accepted medical practice. That's why when we are sick or when there are a test that needs to happen, we go to the doctor and we go and get our test because God uses modern technology and medicine to do his work. So if you are a doctor, if you are a PA, if you are a nurse, if you are a dentist, you are literally doing the Lord's work. And God may not choose to just heal us immediately when we pray because he's going to use people that he has called, people that he has gifted, people that he is using. 
He also may not heal everyone immediately because the sickness may be spiritual discipline. First Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth because they were throwing parties when they were taking the Lord's Supper. They were getting drunk and they were just participating in unspeakable things in the middle of their Jesus gatherings. And he says to them at the end of that section, he says, some of you are sick and some have even fallen asleep, meaning some of you have died because you're treating the Lord's Supper this way. So in this instance, God would not heal them from their sickness immediately because he was using that sickness in their life as spiritual discipline. He also may not heal everyone immediately because the sickness could result in spreading the gospel. That's what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter four, verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Paul says to the Galatians, you know the only reason that I preached the gospel to you, the only reason I was able to bring Jesus to you is because of my bodily ailment, because my physical sickness. It could be that God is allowing you to endure this sickness because through the sickness, someone is going to see Christ in your perseverance. He's gonna see, they're gonna see Christ in your graciousness. They're gonna see Christ in your faithfulness. They're gonna see Christ and hear about Christ because of your appointment. And God may use that. He also may not heal everyone immediately because the sickness could be for the purpose of humility. The apostle Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What most Bible scholars believe was something physical, some physical illness, maybe the same one that he's referring to in Galatians chapter four. And he says multiple times he asked for it to be removed. Multiple times he asked God, God, could you take this away? And the scripture says that Jesus speaks back to them and said, no, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. Meaning I'm going to leave this here. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, it's for the purposes of humility. God had done so many amazing things in his life. God had showed him so many wonders that this sickness, this thorn in the flesh was for the purpose of humility. And he just received it as such. Jesus may not heal everyone immediately also because there are cosmic stakes for God's glory. When we talk about illness, we usually end up at Job because he is the perfect example of what we hope never happens to us. He endured a lot. He endured the loss of his children. He endured the loss of his wealth. And he endured the loss of his health in some serious ways. I'm sure Job was tempted at somewhere along, along the line to say, God, where have you? Have you abandoned me? But when we read the beginning of Job, we know that, that nothing could be further from the truth because the reason Job had experienced all that loss and was currently experiencing all that physical sickness was because Satan had appeared before God, the accuser of the brethren. And God essentially had recommended Job. You know, you've tested all these people, but have you tested my servant Job? He's faithful. And Satan says, well, the only reason he's faithful is because he's blessed, he's rich, and he's healthy. And God gives Satan permission to take all of that away from Job. You may be in a season right now where you are experiencing suffering. And like Job, tempted to think and say, God has abandoned me. It may be that God has bet on you. This thing that you're experiencing may not be a sign 
that he has left you, it may be a sign that he believes in you. He believes in the tenacity of your faith. He believes in your commitment. He believes in your future. So it could be that he has not responded to your prayers of healing, not because he does not care, but because there are cosmic stakes for his glory and your sickness. Also, he doesn't heal everyone immediately because God has ordained and recorded all of our days. That's what Psalm 139 verse 16 says. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He doesn't heal everyone. These are some of the reasons. But it could be that none of these reasons are applicable to your situation. It could be a question mark. You could test all of these things and not find an answer in the middle, but his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there will always be some sentences that have question marks in the end, as long as this is a life of faith and not a life of sight. But we need to be careful not to fall into the thinking, thinking that because we don't understand that God is never willing. Many of us pray prayers of faith, but they're deflated before they even leave our mouths. They start as, start as seeds of faith in our mind and in our heart, but by the time they actually get to our breath, doubt has already crept in. We think, oh, he's not willing. But Jesus is more willing than we would give him credit for because Jesus was more willing than these disciples gave him credit for. Number three, Bartimaeus believed by pushing through the opposition. Verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, why would these followers of Jesus tell Bartimaeus to be quiet? I mean, he's making an exclamation of praise. He's making an appeal for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. Why would Jesus' followers try to squash that? Well, verse 32 of Mark chapter 10 tells us why. Because then that verse, it says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem. And that meant a few things for them. I brought a slide with me so you could understand what it meant to go up to Jerusalem at this moment in Jesus' life and in the life of his disciples. First, they were going up to Jerusalem, which was the political capital of Israel. Remember, Rome ruled the world at the time, and Rome had placed their center of governance of Israel right there in Jerusalem. The Romans used local leadership, though, as an extension of their authority, and that group was called the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. A small group of wealthy, religious men. They're ultimately the ones who pushed for the death of Jesus it was also believed that whenever the Messiah would come, he would ascend to a physical throne in Jerusalem. And when that happened, a few spiritual things were going to happen there in that capital city. First, when the Messiah became king, and remember the disciples believed Jesus was the Messiah, it would become the center of the kingdom of God. It would be ground zero for God's action on planet earth. It would become the center of the presence of God. They believed when the Messiah was on their throne, Rome was out of the picture, the Sanhedrin was underneath the authority of the Messiah, that God's presence would come back down in a cloud, fill up their temple in Jerusalem, just as it had been in the days of David and Solomon. And they believed then it would become, Jerusalem would become the center of God's activity for his people. People moving in and out of the city of Jerusalem 
as they moved in and out of God's presence. This is what these disciples believed. So as they're on their way up to Jerusalem, they pass through Jericho, get on the other side. Someone is yelling, trying to stop Jesus. The disciples are like, no, we can't stop for just one person. Why? Because of all this. This is more important. Jesus is going to teach in the temple. And what do we know? After he teaches in the temple, he shares a last supper with the disciples. He washes their feet. And we know then he goes to the cross so that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. See, it would be easy for us to fall into the same trap as the disciples and say, well, Jesus has got to focus his time on the most influential miracles. Jesus has got to spend his time doing the important things. That's why the disciples hushed him because we got somewhere to be. That's why you and I, we don't pray for as many miracles as we should because we always compare what we need to what someone else needs. And in this world, there's someone else who always needs more. Or we compare what we need with the bigger things that Jesus could be doing in this world, like hunger and straightening out Washington, D.C. God help us. But Bartimaeus, he didn't let those disciples stop him which is a good reminder for us, church, as followers of Jesus, we should never be on the side of preventing people from coming to Jesus, even if we have important things to do. But what's it say? That many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more. All the more. He persevered. He pushed through the opposition. See, God has hardwired perseverance into the effectiveness of prayer. When you read the New Testament, you'll see that. That there are rarely times which he teaches prayer, but doesn't also teach perseverance. He's hardwired it in. Why? Because perseverance is one of the purest signs of faith. We think of opposition as excuses to quit. The reality is, like Bartimaeus, opposition are excuses for all the more. So if you have not received your request for healing, Bartimaeus' example for us today is all the more. If you are trying to stop God to turn his attention to your need and it has not happened yet, all the more. If people are saying, no, 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 give up, stop, all the more, all the more. And number four, Bartimaeus believed and we see that belief because he knew what he wanted and Jesus stopped verse 49 and said call him and they called the blind man saying to him take heart get up he's calling you and throwing off his cloak he sprang up and came to Jesus and Jesus said to him what do you want me to do for you and the blind man said to him rabbi let me recover my sight Imagine this morning that Jesus just appears right to you, just to you. You're all alone, right to you, pulls up two chairs and says, I want to have an eye to eye, knee to knee 
conversation with you. And so you sit down in the seat. I'm sure most of you are thinking like what I'm thinking about, which is like, how much trouble am I in right now? And he asked you just one question, the same question he asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What would you ask for? Earlier in Mark chapter 10, you remember, even we studied it last week, he asked that same question to the disciples, James and John. Remember they said to him, before we ask you for something specific, we want a guaranteed yes from you. We want to make sure, we want you to say that you'll say yes no matter what. And his next question is, what do you want me to do for you? And they use it for their vanity. They use it so that when Jesus is in his kingdom, one can sit on the right hand and one can sit on the left at places of importance and prominence. That's what they used it for. But if, if he said that same question to you today, what would you ask for? Would you ask for something temporary? Would you ask for something shallow? Or would you ask for the salvation of someone you love? Would you ask for a revival in your own heart and the heart of our city? Would you ask for provision because you're in need? Would you ask for reconciliation because there are relationships that are at odds? Would you ask for healing because you're sick? Would you say to Jesus, eye to eye and knee to knee, would you make me just one promise? Will you make sure that I don't waste my life on things that don't matter? Will you promise to use me? Will you promise that when I'm done and my days come to an end in the book that you've recorded that I have nothing left, what would you ask when he says, what do you want me to do for you? Because whatever that answer is, it's clarity about where you are right now. It's clarity about what you care for, what you wanna be about. And it's through that question that you and I can start to pray prayers that are worth persevering. Because if Jesus pulls up a chair, knee to knee, eye to eye with you and says, what do you want me to do for you? None of us are gonna say, help me have a good day tomorrow. None of us are gonna give a generic, bless me, bless them. You're gonna ask something specific, powerful and important. The reason most of us don't persevere in prayer is because our prayers are weak and they're small they don't matter. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus knew he had been blind for quite some time. And he says, I want to recover my sight. And look what Jesus says in verse 52. He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Number five in your listening guide, Bartimaeus believed. And we know that because Jesus way became his way. Notice what Jesus says. He says, go your way, Bartimaeus. And it says, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. There are some people who receive their healing and leave. There are some people who receive their healing and follow closer. Bartimaeus started this story on the side of the road and he ended this story on the road. Jesus says, go your way. And Bartimaeus says, "Uh, your way now is my way. Why would God heal us through Jesus' power? First, because he cares about you. There are not better and bigger things that he has to do on his way to Jerusalem than to stop and see you. He cares about you. He heals us for the glory of God and the Son 
and the Spirit. That's why Mark included this story in chapter 9, so that you and I would know that Jesus is glorified and able to heal. And he heals us so that we can get off the side of the road and onto the road so that our way will increasingly become his way. What is my relationship with Jesus' healing power? We can't control it. It's not ours to give out. Our job is to have a faith that shows itself through perseverance. Let's pray. We've worshiped in the side of God. We've opened up the word of God. Why don't you take just a second and say to God directly, in light of all of that, what do you want me to do next? Help us by your power. Listen and obey.